Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. This week, I'm talking to the CFO Whisperer. I'm sure this is going to be an interesting conversation. So welcome to the Grow CFO show, the CFO Whisperer, Declan Tyrrell. Uh, thank you very much, Kevin. I'm delighted to be here. Declan, what does a CFO Whisperer do? Okay. Uh, my background is I am a former CFO. I've done a lot of transformation work. I've done a lot of M&A work. Basically, change is what I've done. I've done a lot of buying. I sometimes describe myself as a recovering buyer. I'm at stage seven. Apologize to all the salespeople who tried to sell. I was a horrible buyer. I work mostly with sales organizations to help them understand the world of the CFO and help them position value in such a way that inspires the CFO to want to allow whatever you want them to do to happen. Now, there must be a lot of lessons that CFOs can learn from a conversation you're constantly having with sales folk. One of my simple approaches to this is it's not about selling, it's about buying. And there's two buying processes that run in parallel. So one, I say, find a person with the problem that you're solving, the one who wants to buy from. That used to be the only buying process. That's not the easy bit. The second process that runs in parallel to that is that buyer needs to influence their internal stakeholders to allow this project to happen. And the CFO, particularly in times of economic uncertainty, tends to be one of the key internal stakeholders. And I've seen that on a number of occasions, being in the position of trying to, say, sell a consulting project. I'll often say things like, look to inspire, not impress. When you look to impress, it's all about you. When you look to inspire, it's all about the customer. And what can happen, sometimes salespeople, if they don't feel they're credible enough to talk to the CFO, and all I would say is the CFO will talk to you because they assume you have credibility. We don't talk to people we don't think have credibility. So you have that borrowed credibility to begin with. But the quickest way to lose it is to turn up and vomit your CV or your credentials up on top of the CV in an effort to demonstrate that you have credibility. We won't talk to you unless we think we have you. So I'm a big fan of what I call straightforward communication. Tell me more about that. This is more about clarity of purpose with regards to every engagement. It's about being clear about why we're here, what we're looking to do, and what success will look like. So it means you use a lot less words, you use a lot simpler language, and you bring clarity to exactly what you're trying to get from the engagement. I've been on calls sometimes where I'm two, three, four, five minutes in, and I think, I'm not quite sure why I'm here. And if you're not quite sure why you're there, then you're not listening with purpose, which means you can drift, which means that you then get called upon, you're not in rapport with whether that's the CFO, whether that with their peer, whether that's with the center. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But we're talking about the salesperson you're approaching the CFO. So we're talking about two stages, the process of buying. What we're really seeing now is most of the buying and selling that actually happens, happens internally. 
So you find that buyer, it's them buying and selling internally to sell what you're trying to do. And they're not trained salespeople, but your success as a salesperson is in the hands of them. But likewise, what you have is from the seller's perspective, they're trying to navigate their sales operation to make sure they can put the deal together that makes it easy for the customer to say yes. So I'm often brought in on deals where the structure of the deal is what moves it forward. You would think moving away from capital projects to say something like cloud, where it's consumption-based, is very much a move from CapEx to OpEx. But one of the key things being is if the CFO is success is measured on EBITDA, your earnings before interest tracks depreciation and amortization, then that can mean a move from CapEx to OpEx can damage him or her and their fellow executives in the pocket in relation to their bonus. So sometimes it's understanding that it's about, let's look at the annual reports. Let's have a look and see how they are rewarded. Because if that's a potential barrier, there's ways in which you can structure these deals so that they are EBITDA neutral. There's even ways of doing it so that they are actually, they're not just CapEx or they're not just EBITDA neutral, but they're EBITDA positive. Hey, and I can see they're the very clear need for the salesperson to have the support of the finance person in order to structure the deal in a way it works. Not just the main buyer, but the people that the buyer has to convince to get the deal signed off. Yeah, and look, we're we're in a, call it economic downturn. When that happens, the amount of control that's handed to the CFO is unbelievable. But if you can't tie into that, particularly in times of economic uncertainty, if your value proposition isn't screaming, this is how we're going to impact that, then it's really difficult because it can be seen as a vanity project. It can be seen as a way of making the IT department's life easier without necessarily adding the value to the organization that's required. And sometimes that value can come from the solution that solves the problem, frees up resources. And then you've got to think about how do you creatively then use those freed up resources to add that value. I learned this the hard way as a CFO. You can often do projects that identify an increase in productivity. Therefore, you now have extra resources. If you don't have an effective plan to transition that extra resource quickly into something that's more revenue or profit generating, then it actually, the good work that you do can get absorbed. So if I remember one project, I had one director say to me, we'll be able to get rid of two members of staff in six months time. And I said, okay. And six months time, I came down, I knocked on her office door and I said, okay, give me two names. Said, what do you mean? Give me two names. Said, the two people you said are going after six months. Ah, no, no, no. Oh, we can't get rid of any people. So we'd improve the productivity. But if someone's working eight hours a day, the capability to do that at six hours a day, but you don't replace that work with something else, going to take the meeting. And that's the thing. I've worked on many projects where you make a business case, but by all of this effort saved. Particularly if you say you're going to do a shared services project. That's near home finance transformation for the CFO. You're going to cut down the number of people or at least the number of full-time equivalents you have processing transactions. But if you can move, say, five days a month effort out of a team of 100 people, 
That doesn't mean to say you can remove any people. What you've got to do is better use the five days a month of time that you've freed up. The role of finance has really been bogged down in capturing data, processing data, validating data, and then spitting the data out. And it's not unusual for us to spend 90% of our time on that type of activity and only 10% of our time interpreting the data and taking corrective action, if you like. It's the wrong, got to be 90-10 the other way. And things like automation, things like what is going on in the tech world, and it has been able to automate and improve the productivity of a huge amount. But the key thing now is the skill set required of your new capability is not the same as that that you had. So you may save on data inputting resource, but you now need business analytical skills. It's a completely different character, completely different set of skills. And that's the trick that you've somehow got to pull off, that quite often you are freeing effort up from people that are at the bottom end of the function, but you need to replace that with time spent by people that are more able top end of the function. I've done it a number of different ways. I'd often say, okay, you've got a choice. You want it done quickly and you want it done more medium term. And I've had organizations choose both. One of my favorite ones, it was a big law firm. I went in to restructure them and I said, you need new capability. You're far too much data inputting. There's not enough automation. There's not enough automated reconciliation. There's a whole host of things I said we can fix here but we need to move towards this more business analytical approach. They said, okay, how long will this take? So I'm going to give you two days, six months or two years. They said, how do we do it in six months? I said, I need to replace 50% of the stuff. They went, okay, if we do it in two years, what does that mean? I said, well, I mean, you won't get any benefit. You will, but it will take us two years to fully transition to a more modern finance department. And to their credit, that's the route that they chose. I came in and I said, first off, everyone that's working here now, you're doing a wonderful job. I'm going to find out what you're doing. I spent the first couple of months working out what they were doing. I said, okay, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to set the bar. Here's the goal. Here's the bar. Here's the standards which we're going to work to. But we're only going to start measuring you from that today. So I'm not going to have some type of performance review and say, by the way, we decided your role is completely different. And therefore the last 12 months has been a disaster. We're only measuring it from that today. And now here's your option. You can now opt into this journey, or you can opt out of that journey. Now I had at that time, I had eight people opt in to be, to go on a path to become qualified accountants. I think four that went and did the AAT. And another four went on to complete the ACCA. But that was all out of that kind of initiative. Now, that was one of the proudest, if you like, moments of my career where we actually genuinely made a difference to people's lives by giving them a path through to success at a time of huge change in the organization. Absolutely. And if you take that view of doing it in six months, you've got no choice but to bring in new people with the right skills. Because you can't skill the old people up fast enough. Do it over two years, you can skill up a good number of people. But you're also going to have a certain amount of natural churn in the organization where people would have left anyway, and you've got a choice to replace them, not with the same, but with different. So you bring in the new skills that you don't have in your organization that way. That's 100% correct. Your first hire is a huge one. It's a standard. 
So yes. you bring in a standard bearer. The first one in is really, really crucial. Now everyone else looks at that and it's like a pacer in a race. They're now looking at it going, oh my God, okay, that's what good standard looks like. That's what's expected. But Declan, you let slip a little organization you've had a lot to do with. You mentioned Google. I actually created initially, it was a BI consultancy. I had done a lot of transformation, drove profitability through data models. And I taught, I built out the software, I taught I'd sell the software. Nobody wanted to buy the software. They wanted to buy my business acumen, my interpretation of their data, rather than just having a machine skew it out. So quite really quickly turned into a kind of a change consultancy. I was actually playing veterans football with another guy. And he said to me, what do you do? I said, I'm a CFO. What do you do? He said, I uh, teach salespeople how to sell. And I said, oh, okay. I said, I've just set up a new business. Any chance you can help me to have to sell? And he went, yeah, yeah, we get into this conversation. And he ended up pulling me into the world of technology. Originally with Oracle, where I used to come and role play the role of a CFO with their sellers when they would do a week-long onboarding sales bootcamp. I was given that kind of two or three page case study, said, there you go. That's your organization. You're the CFO. Here's your characteristics. We used to set this up with props and everything else. It was very good. And I would play that role for the week. But of course, what they hadn't seen before, when you had great skills, facilitators playing the role, it was one thing. When you had someone with 25 years finance experience playing the role, it just brought it to different levels. And so. It got in and the role-playing stuff like that was really cool. And then they went, okay, you need to come back. And then I started doing more and more of that. And then eventually, first Oracle came to me and said, okay, we want you working for us. And I went in there as what we call a finance evangelist. Now, once I started that, and then Google had been one of my other big customers, Google said, where the hell are you? I said, I'm after taking a job in Oracle. They said, well, no, that was an option. So eventually they convinced me to go and have a chat with them. The whole culture, everything else blew me away. And I went in there as the CFO whisperer. So I used to run deal clinics. Like the last 12 months in there, I had 300 deals come through the deal clinics with revenue of $2.3 billion. It was, I got involved in some big stuff, but I got involved in some small stuff. And the way I ran the clinics was very simple. First come, first serve. You were able to book in and you could book in to observe, or you could book in to participate. And I used to run about five of these clinics a week, an hour at a time. If I had five people in there, you each got 10 minutes each on your deal. If I had two people in there, you got 30 minutes each. It was as simple as that. And then it built a bit of a following where people would watch it and stuff like that. We used to record some of them, but it was fascinating to get dragged into that whole world of like how technology is helping business transform. And the things I would say from it is where CFOs took more of an active interest in projects, there was a higher success rate than there was when they didn't. And so I got a statistic, scarily enough, 70% of digital transformation projects don't work. Seven zero. That's scary as hell. And quite often what it's missing is that financial acumen. That purpose that if you walk into the CFO, I was renowned for saying, so what? Who cares? And so what? Those are the two things that used to come out of my mouth the whole time. Uh, And if you couldn't demonstrate a so what and a who cares, then it was very difficult for you to get project past me. I definitely think the role of the CFO 
they, where we're seeing it really work, they're leaning in on those strategic kind of decisions and they are putting manners on the process of how to identify what we need as well as who we go with. Gosh, it's 20 years to work I did in PwC consulting, a lot of work around benefits realization. We had a very similar stat, not on digital transformation, but on ERP implementations, which was probably the big thing. I'm getting cold sweats now thinking ERP. No, it was back to the genuine, have you worked out what the benefits are that you want to get out of this? This isn't just implementing some software. Again, we come back to what's the value? What's the bottom line impact? And that kind of conversation we had earlier, you said, well, we're going to lose two people in six months' time. Going back and saying, where's the two people? Just no benefits realization in place. Typically, the problem back then, I don't think it's a lot different now, was even if you've written the benefits down and you'd thought about them, you got into the implementation and you had a whole load of trouble building the interfaces. You had a whole load of trouble transferring the data. You had a whole load of trouble getting the thing ready to go live on day one. And the effort of everybody went into getting the system to work. And we completely forgot about in the process of, and why did we decide to have this system in the first place? One of the things that had me perceive, I don't think I was a tough buyer, but a lot of salespeople who engage me would say they found me tough. But when, for example, when people would put business justifications or some type of business case together and bring it to me, everyone does this, but there's nothing built in to measure it post implementation. And I go, hold on a second here. How do I know if that's true or not? What do you mean? You're telling me it's going to bring this level of productivity, this level of growth, or this level of profitability. How are we going to measure that? I said, then it's a nonsense statement. Who's going to be accountable for it? There you go. Accountability is such a beautiful, beautiful thing. If I've been renowned in meetings when I turned around, particularly when people start complaining about something or what should happen, say, okay, that's just for my benefit. Let's just hear about what's the issue. That's the issue. Okay. Who owns it? And if there isn't, if you're saying, if you can't offer someone up or an obvious one up, because you can't nominate someone in absentia. But if you're, it's you until you find someone else. So, okay, you've identified an issue. You're now accountable for making this, for finding a solution to this. Now you can have your conversation. I tell you, that puts manners on conversations and meetings, which stops the complaining. And like my mother was a great influence on me and she has the, what's it called? The serenity. Give me the courage to change the things I can, the tolerance to accept the things I can't, and the wisdom to know the difference. And what I was ruthless at as a CFO is not talking about things we cannot change. We can't influence that. I don't care. All it is packing, it's negative energy, it's fluff. We get rid of that. What can we change? What can we impact? What do we need to do? If you talk too long about the problem, problem becomes bigger. If you spend more time talking about the solution, the problem becomes bigger. You're the CFO in the organization. Somebody's coming along to you and saying, I want to do this, Declan. And you'll say, show me the business case. What sort of things would you expect to be in a good business case? So first thing I'd say to them is within the budget. 
Yeah. And people coming in smiling into your office, I said, no one smiles walking in to see the CFO. They smile on their way in, I'll say. I've often looked up and said, don't even sit down if it's not on the budget. I haven't even opened her mouth yet at this stage. I actually coach quite a number of CFOs. And this is what I call, it's like playing tennis. Push them out the door. If they come back again, they might build up the courage and they might come back hours later or a day or two later or whatever. I'll give them some air time. But only 50% of them come back. So it means I don't have to wait and waste my time with 50% of nonsense. Having said that, when they come in, absolutely. So I'm very simple. It is sustainable, profitable growth. Tell me how it relates to this. What I'm not interested in is in short term, we move from this supplier to this supplier, we save 10%. We're not saving 10% of our OPEX. We're saving 10% of a cost that might be 1% of our OPEX. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't continually be staying on top of all of our spend and our suppliers and keeping them honest. You can change willy-nilly, can keep changing every quarter. Because even just the management of those relationships and the exposure to fraud just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So I'm a firm believer, if you want to break away from this, that's okay. But show me, what are you going to do? What's the problem you're solving? How are you going to address it? How long is it going to take? And what are we going to get from it? And then things like payback period would be important, particularly when I'm looking at the impact it will have on the current year's budget. Because for me, the way I used to use things was very simple. We had discretionary spend and non-discretionary spend when we were looking at our budgets. Discretionary, ah, we will do that, we won't do that. Non-discretionary, pretty much have to do it. And that might be contracts, might be leases, might be people, et cetera, all that in. The big discussion, the big argument is always over the discretionary spend. I want to spend 200000 I want to spend a million. Okay, and particularly, you come into Q4, we all know the way businesses work. We would love businesses to work on a linear basis. We would love the revenue to arrive evenly Q1, Q2. It doesn't. Most businesses, most of the revenue lands in the last quarter. And a lot of businesses lands in the last month of the last quarter, which puts a big skew to it, which means for a lot of the year, you're chasing your tail in relation to performance. Now you've got someone coming in, say, start a Q3 and saying, okay, I want to do something. I want to spend 200000 and it's not in budget. And we're already behind budget, maybe not on spend, but on profitability because revenue growth hasn't been what we had targeted. Now, that's a difficult ask. So now what I'm saying is, what is the cost associated with this financial year? How quickly will I get that investment back? I do a lot of this in my current role, where we're looking at structuring deals. It might be the cost of the project might be 200000 or it might be a million, but the impact in the current financial year might be a fraction of that. And that might be enough or to make it easier for the CFO to say yes to that particular deal. With once it's committed to the spend the following year actually falls into the non-discretionary spend and there's no big argument or discussion at around. Let's think back to that very first question you would ask. Is it in the budget? Well, chances are it probably isn't in the budget because the budget was some random set of numbers you thought about. Well, let's say if it's quarter four, well, you thought about this set of numbers about a year ago and we didn't have a crystal ball. Somebody's coming along and saying, sorry, no, Declan, it's not in the budget. You've got two choices here. You either say, well, okay, demonstrate to me how it's going to pay back in year so I don't have to worry about the budget. Or if we're going to do this, you're going to have to justify this ahead of something else. This means I'm going to take something out of the budget. It's a prioritization question. Like, I don't believe in just cut, cut, cut. 
in relation to costs. And I don't believe in just increase, increase, increase in relation to revenue. So I would go and say, okay, I know what our costs are. And the first cut, how much profit do you want? And I add that on. And then they tell me, oh, no, no, we can't generate. That's too much revenue. And I'm okay, then how much less profit do you want? Oh, no, we want that amount of profit. They go, you're going to have to put your money where your mouth is. So we will land on something eventually. So we'll do our top-down approach from our budgeting, particularly on our revenue side. But then I go and say, before we're signing off of this, you've got to give me a plan on how you're going to get there. Because I want to see a plan that they have to succeed. And I don't mind if the plan comes up short. They come back and say, look, in relation to the revenue target you want us to get to, and I understand, particularly if it's from a global perspective, we don't really have a say in this. This is the figure we have to get to. But if we do what we did with the performance we achieved last year with the current level of resource, we're going to fall short 20%, 30%, wherever it may be. Say, that's okay. Now we plan to fill the gap. And whether that's some type of acquisition, whether it's acquisition of a business, acquisition of a company, whether it's investment in something else, I don't mind investing money to plug the hole. But what I really don't abide by is someone signing off on a revenue target, but has a plan that plans to fall short. So you're now planning to fail. We can't be starting out the year with a plan to fail and then be shocked when halfway through the year or three quarters of the way through the year, we realize we're not going to hit our target. We better off having those difficult conversations in the planning stage before we get into our financial year so that we land on something or, and sometimes it's a case that we're going to have to take a leap of faith on something. I don't mind that, but it has to be an informed decision, not a blind hope, because hope is not a very good strategy. Hang on a minute. This is the real link between our strategy. If we go into this plan, there are some things we're going to stop doing, some things that I knew that we're going to start doing, and some things we're going to continue doing. My, what I'd be keen on in the budget, one of the reasons I like zero-based budgets, Yeah, let's build this up from scratch. Oh, hang on. You've just proposed all of these budget lines. Aren't those relating to all of this stuff that we said we were going to stop? I call it the, the execution gap. We've all worked on strategic plans, and you do your three-year and your five-year plan, and everyone gets excited, and then it goes in the drawer, and we leave it alone for another three years. And... And I'm looking at this going, no, 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 no. You can't turn around and say strategically as an organization, this is at the level of growth that we plan to get to over the next three or five years. And at the same time, allow budgets or operational plans, or one-year operational plans, to fall well short of what is needed to deliver on the strategic plan. I yeah. call that the execution gap. And I, and I, I am ruthless with that. The biggest role the CFO's got in strategy yes. is losing that execution gap. But once you've hit on strategy, what it's going to be, then that real role is closing that execution gap without a doubt. Yeah. Declan, we've covered a lot of stuff today. It's been fascinating to find out what Google's CFO Whisperer does or did or will do in the future. Declan, thank you hugely for being this week's guest on the Grow CFO Show. Kevin, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, my friend. 